and welcome to Crazy Money with Paul Ollinger. Thank you, Izzy, for that very sweet introduction. I'm happy to be home. I've spent the last five nights in San Diego at the San Diego Comedy Festival. I made it into the finalists group, and it was an incredibly talented group of comedians. Very proud to be a part of that. Thanks for having me out there. While I was in Southern California, I did both Adam Carolla and Dr. Drew's podcasts. I will post links to those when they're live in a week or two. This coming Friday night, I'll be headlining the Lazoom Room in Asheville, North Carolina, and will be on the Best of Atlanta shows Saturday and Sunday nights at the Laughing Skull Lounge in Midtown Atlanta, my home and favorite club. Okay, our guest today this week on Crazy Money is Brian Portnoy. Have you ever heard of Brian Portnoy, Is he? Do you know who he is? No. No, you don't? Well, he's a very smart guy. He's very smart. He's a daddy just like me, but he has more um, colleges that I than I do. He's a PhD and a CFA. He's an expert in simplifying the complex world of money in his two books, The Investor's Paradox and The Geometry of Wealth. He tackles the challenges of not only making better investment decisions, but also on how money figures into a joyful life. Do you think money is important to living a joyful life, Izzo? Mm, kind of. In what way do you think that? So you can be healthy and get all the things you need. So you can be healthy and get all the things you need. Right. You need a little bit of money, right? To at least be able to have food and clothes and stuff, right? Well, that's right. And he talks about how you shouldn't just try to get too much just to have it. You should know what you want from it. He's currently the head of education at Magnetar Capital and has spent the last 25 years as an educator, investor, and strategist. He holds a doctorate from the University of Chicago, not an easy school to get into, And he currently lives on the north side of Chicago with his wife and three children. We have a good conversation. We talk about the important parts of money. He starts out his investment philosophy by defining what what you want from money before you start investing it. And we discuss how money should be in service of your life goals and that it should not be the life goal in and of itself, which is exactly the kind of stuff we talk about here on what's the name of the show, Izzy? Crazy Money. Crazy Money. Tell everybody to have a good time listening to Mr. Portnoy, Dr. Portnoy. Listen to Dr. Portnoy. All right. We'll talk to you after. Why do most people invest? What what are they trying to achieve? The answer is more. More what? I mean, (laughs) okay. This is why economics and finance is mostly just a huge load of bullshit. Like, what is it all about? Well, the basic utility function, it doesn't matter how fancy the math gets, basic utility function in economics is that more is better than less. And the world is just absolutely like their backs are breaking under the amount of stuff that we have. My name is Paul Ollinger. I'm a stand-up comedian with a background in the corporate world. I hit the lottery when I worked at a small company called Facebook. I'm fascinated with money, why we're so obsessed with it, and how it makes us happy or not. This is not a podcast about how to make a million bucks, how to beat the stock market, or how to save money by switching cable providers. It's about how we think about and live with money as a society and as individuals. It's about the choices we make that lead us toward or away from happiness. Welcome to Crazy Money. Brian Portnoy, welcome to Crazy Money. Thanks for having me. Brian, now you are a PhD from the University of Chicago and you've written a book called The Geometry of Wealth, How to Shape a Life of Money and Meaning. What does geometry of wealth refer to? It refers to the fact that there's actually a a simple and understandable path to achieve true wealth. As I think you've seen in the book, I define true wealth as the ability to underwrite a meaningful life. The shorthand I use for that is funded contentment. And I make a pretty stark distinction between that and being rich, you know, most of the finance industry, but also from a 
everyday point of view, most money conversations are about having more. And so I spend a fair amount of time in the book giving some perspective on what the quest for more actually entails. And I argue in different ways that it's not all that it's cracked up to be. What we really want to do in our money life is underwrite a meaningful life, however you want to define that. And we can get into that if you'd like. I offer some details on that. Focusing on that path to true wealth, it has three steps, which I capture in three basic shapes, uh, a circle, a triangle, and a square. And it's really the path from defining your purpose to setting your priorities to making uh, more tactical decisions. The circle represents the fact that we're always going around and around in life uh, trying to figure out what really motivates us. And, and we're never really done with that, I believe. In terms of priorities, I talk about three and triangle. And then uh, in terms of tactical decisions with regard to investing per se, I talk about the fact that there are four basic expectations that we need to set in order to achieve good outcomes. The idea was to you know, use simple pictures to convey complex ideas so that I could more easily have conversations with people without their eyes glazing over. One of the things that drew me to your book, besides the somewhat provocative title, is that you approach investment and money management from sort of the inside out. You take the time to emphasize knowing one's goals as the key to investing. So in the first step of that is defining your purpose. So how does purpose play into helping money help you lead a more meaningful life? So I'll say a couple things that will come across as pretty obvious, but the fact is that most of the investment business, most conversations about money run contrary to these pretty basic insights. And the biggest is that money should be in service of something as opposed to the goal uh, in and of itself. And, and we all know that. Like who's really, well, I guess there are a few people on cable television who might disagree. But you know, for the most part, I think we can all get behind that idea that the problem comes in with the fact that money is a language that none of us speak particularly well. And as we kind of stumble and stammer through conversations about saving and spending and investing and insuring and earning and all those sorts of broad money-related concepts, we do tend to get wrapped around the axle. We, we have a hard time in our own minds clarifying what it is we're really trying to achieve and where money fits into, into that quest. And then when we get into a, I'll call it a social sphere, meaning conversation between husband and wife, parents and children financial advisors and their clients, all of those different dynamics, it, it becomes very difficult to have good conversations. So I wanted to write something that hopefully would facilitate much better, much clearer, much more intellectually, and frankly, much more emotionally honest about uh, conversations about what we're, we're trying to achieve. In terms of sort of digging in on purpose, you know, I talk about four different things that are meaningful to us, connection, control, competence and context. And, and I'm happy to sort of walk through those if you'd like to um, give a little bit of a grist for the mill. I think that's a really interesting thing that people don't think about. Well, I'll use myself as an example. I made a little money at Facebook. I made a very good amount of money at Facebook. There was a point where they asked me to move to a new town. I didn't want to do that. And I basically said, okay, I think I'm done with work. And when I left my job, it's great for a couple of months you exercise a lot, you take a trip to Europe, you start eating right and reading the books on your bookshelf. But then at a certain point, you wake up and go, 
where are my friends? What's my identity? Why do I feel bored? Because I didn't have any challenges. I wasn't working toward anything. So I think those, those C's that you outline really are important. And, and I'd love for you to dive into those a bit. Yeah, yeah. And another topic that I think it might be worth diving into is this notion of retirement. I actually think it's one of the more dangerous ideas in modern society for a bunch of reasons, but we can, we can and, put a pin in that and, and come back to it. And retirement's getting a lot of ink these days with the whole fire movement, but let's do come back to that. Let's, uh, let's rip on that in a few minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Not a fan. So four sources of underlying meaning in, in our lives. Okay, so this isn't a finance conversation. This is a uh, philosophy and literature and, and religion and sociology and anthropology uh, conversation, just based on being alive in the world, but also doing some directed reading over the last four years, think that there are four things that really motivate us and, and drive a deeper sense of meaning. One is, uh, and I put it at the top of the list, connection. We are deeply in our genes, uh, social animals. And so, you know, the word uh, tribe or tribal Tribalism has become politically charged lately, but small t tribalism is a really good thing. Going back hundreds of thousands of years, we learn to rely on each other, and it's just part of who we are. We need to have that sense of belonging. The second dimension is what I call control or autonomy, that, that sense of self-determination, that you're in charge of your own life, that you can write your own story. That's super important to us. And, and keep in mind that these two really deep sources of meaning, connection and control, are to some extent at any moment in time uh, a little bit at odds with each other, which can, can create some tensions and confusions in our lives, meaning that to belong to something but to also have complete control over the, the direction that you're going doesn't always work. The third source of meaning is competence, and it's what you alluded to in your kind of post Facebook walkabout, which is the fact that work is deeply connected to our sense of identity. You know, when you go to a, a party, what's, what's the first thing that someone asks when you meet them? Where's the bar? Where's the- <laughs> well, I'm, I'm assuming we're already at the bar. Okay. Okay. Right. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. No, it's sort of, yeah, the preamble to all of it includes uh, making sure that you have a full drink. But once you do, and you're talking to somebody, they say, what do you do? And, and, and right. the fact of the matter is they don't care. The real question they're asking is, who are you? What, what's your identity? What might I have in common with you? And so I think, you know, one of the larger and maybe the largest stress in not only American, but global society is that the nature of work, the nature of labor uh, is changing significantly right before our eyes. And that sense of dislocation from work and not having satisfaction uh, from work can cause enormous problems, not only individually, but socially. So competence is a source of meaning. And then finally, context. People who are happier tend to have some attachment, an attachment to something outside of themselves. The big topic over the millennia has been religion. You know, the, the idea that you're, you're, you're connected to a, a larger organized faith, but nationalism and patriotism and even your sports team. It's not a trivial thing. You feel attached through that sense of connection, but you're also, you're, you're living for, or you're inspired by something that's not you. And egomaniacs and narcissists tend to be relatively miserable people uh, because they're only focused on the, themselves. So all in, I think there's four broad sources of contentment or, or deeper meaning in life. That's my framework. I, I hope people find it helpful. My sense in, you know, sort of talking to people and book tours and speeches is that, you know, folks can use that as almost a checklist to walk through what's really driving their meaning uh, at any moment in time. 
And we should also appreciate that it's not static. If I think back over my own life, there are times when work was more important or less important, connection or attachment to family and friends. Sometimes it was everything. Other times it was less important and so on and so forth. So I think it's a good tool to think through, okay, if being truly wealthy is underwrite a meaningful life, let's start with the meaningful part and then go to the underwriting part. I totally agree with you, first of all, because and, and these were lessons I learned the hard way by failing on an incredible job at an incredible company and then finding myself on the beach going, well, what the hell am I all about? <laughs> but you talk about the trade-off between connection and control, and I think this is a real conundrum in today's work world where if you have an interesting job, it is all or nothing. I mean, you are in it. You are traveling like crazy for a lot of people. You're working 60, 80, 100 hours a week. And that doesn't leave a lot of time for, there's a lot of connection, but it doesn't leave a lot of time for control or autonomy or balance in life. And so people who view it as all or nothing are sort of pushed to make radical decisions. And that fire movement, you know, people saying the idea is to bail in your early 30s, that's not the answer. I don't think it's the answer for sure. And one thing I like to point out is that when I talk about these four dimensions, Look, they're, they're a little bit mushy. There's overlap. You know, it's not some sort of perfect taxonomy. It's sort of my mental map for leading a, a meaningful life. The goal of the game is not to score 10 on all four. And like, hey, I got 39 out of 40 if I think through these four dimensions, which means I'm really, really happy. No, it doesn't work that way. Uh, it's not supposed to be kind of a, a quantitative scorecard. What I hope it provides is a vocabulary and a, and, a, and a mental model to think through what's meaningful to you now, what was meaningful to you, what might be meaningful to you in the future. And I think a, a lot of contentment nowadays in light of how much information and choice and noise that we're, we're dealing with is about feeling like you're at least in control of the decisions you're making. You're certainly not in control of the outcomes many of the times, but you're in control of the decisions. And if you are that guy or woman who's just just 100% pedal to the metal, focused on their job, building out their career, at least being aware that you're making, you know, you're making some deliberate choices, that you're making sacrifices, but you're in charge, like you're in control. And, and if you don't want it to be that way, guess what? You can do it differently. That's why I've really come to despise the word busy because I think it's a white flag word. I, I think, yeah, I think it's a word that says, I give up, I don't have control. When people talk to me about being busy, what I always say in response, which <laughs> ends some conversations because I come across as a bit of a jerk, but I'm like, okay, well, you say you're busy. What you really are is confounded by a number of priorities that you have and you need to rank order them. What is your priority? I think the more explicit we are with ourselves, forget others, but just in your own mind saying, these three things are really important, but only one of them is my top priority. You've right. made a decision to then communicate that to others and to forget this ridiculous word busy and just say, you know what, this is my priority. And maybe you explain it, maybe you don't. And the other stuff's really important, but it can't be my priority right at this moment. I think for a lot of people, it's a scary thing to do. I actually personally find it unbelievably liberating. Do you think that most people sort of confuse the definition of being rich and or being wealthy because they're just on autopilot and they've been conditioned to just think that more is better? Yeah. 
Yeah, and part of our genetic wiring is that more is better in the sense that we need to, not only do we need to feel like we're moving forward, we need to move forward, you know, from an evolutionary perspective, Mm -hmm. our deep ancestors who were just kind of chill and lazy, (laughs) um, they they didn't really outrun the saber-toothed tiger. So, you know, the wiring that we have comes from our deep ancestors who got up and ran or killed the animal and had a sense of urgency. So that's just sort of part of part of who we are. I think another problem, and it's a very deep one, and I try to address it in the book, but there's a lot more to say on it, which, and I alluded to it earlier, which is that money is, money is an emotional experience as much as anything. It's also a language that's very difficult because in no societies, and I could say especially American society that participate in every day, the vocabulary, the grammar, the syntax of money is just completely broken. You know, I'm currently involved in a large financial education, financial literacy project, and, and I'm so excited about it because I think if you get away from talking about stocks and bonds and the market and making more money and more is better, you get to a much deeper and granted scarier and more vulnerable issue that, you know, sort of money is to some extent an expression of our humanity, Mm -hmm. then you can actually begin to have a really good conversation about where money fits into a meaningful life. And all of the practical dimensions, saving, spending, investing, earning, and so forth, you can then begin, begin to provide yourself a context for making decisions related to that and understand that these are difficult things. And it's actually more a matter of EQ than IQ to get this stuff right. Right. Our brains play tricks on us. This brain that has evolved from our non saber tooth victim uh, ancestors yep. play tricks on us. And in what ways does my brain keep me from making the right decisions around, around money? You know, footnote, all of behavioral finance. I mean, this is really the most exciting field of investigation over the last few decades. You know, for those who want to take a deep dive on this topic, the, the inventor of the field, uh, Daniel Kahneman, wrote a book a few years ago called Thinking Fast and Slow, which is just a masterful treatment. You know, I'll give you my highlights. There are basic rules that we should abide by, and let's just keep it in the world of investing, okay? There's all this other stuff, saving, spending, earning, insuring, a bunch of other stuff, but take the, the narrow definition of money world and just talk about the market and growing your portfolio from X to 2X. What are some of the basic rules that we should abide by? That if we did them, we'd be in really good shape. You know, one is buy low and sell high. That makes sense. Uh, another is to own a diversified portfolio. You know, uh, spread your bets. Don't make one bet on Facebook or Amazon or Tesla or whatever, but the world's a hard place to predict, so spread your bets. I've got a hot tip. I need to follow it up or I'm going to miss out on an opportunity. Yeah, you're the one. (laughs) Offline, can you give me that hot tip? I'd love to uh, go levered long on it. A third rule of thumb is invest for the long run. Makes sense, you know. This isn't a day-by-day thing. We're planning for our you know, the new home, our kids' college uh, in 10 or, you know, 15 years, retirement in 5, 10, 20, 40 years, whenever it is, invest for the long run. Yep. Here's the problem. The way our brain is wired based on the need to survive in a dangerous, fast-moving environment means that we are actually wired to do the opposite of all of those things I just mentioned. We buy high and we sell low. 
we really dislike diversified portfolios. We, we don't really generally dislike diversification. And we don't do much of anything for the long run because in point of fact, the, the brain doesn't really have a, a long run built into it. What it has is a nearly infinite series of short runs that are attached or stapled together by choice and circumstance. And so, you know, there's a deep well here in terms of neuroscience and, and social psychology and behavioral finance. But one thing I, I really like to stress to the audiences that I speak to and, and groups that I meet is that there's this word that gets used, irrational, and there's an even dirtier word, which is stupid. So instead of thinking in terms of irrational or stupid, I think about a beautiful little quote from one of the modern inventors of behavioral finance, Richard Thaler, who said that people aren't dumb. The world is hard. We're not irrational. We're not stupid. What we are is normal. What we are is human. And I think we can all give ourselves a break, both individually and collectively, to understand that this is hard, that success in investing and in money life more broadly is a psychological exercise and an emotional exercise more so than it is an intellectual one. People get very intimidated. The 90 plus, 95, 98% plus of people who aren't in the world of finance every day, they look at our world and they say, man, look at all those equations and Greek letters and numbers and tickers and, and, and all that kind of stuff. And let me just stop everyone and say, you know what? That's mostly all BS. You don't need to be paying attention to it. In fact, the more information you have, the more likely you are to make a decision you don't need to, and the more likely that decision is going to be wrong. Appreciate that this journey is actually an emotional one. It's a journey of self-discovery. That sound, might sound a little bit goofy or flighty to some people who are totally into the market. Tough. It is. And it's about figuring out what we want to do and how we can then underwrite or afford the things that are meaningful to us. So if I can summarize a couple of points that I think are pretty important, if you've done the, the reflection, the introspection to arrive at clarity around what you want, even if it's in a dynamic clarity and evolving clarity over time, if you have that clarity of purpose and you approach your strategy with simplicity, you can avoid a whole lot of trouble in the world of investing. Yes. Pay less attention. Know yourself better. Know the outside world less. Planning is a critical piece to all of this. So it's just not about defining purpose. That's important. That's evergreen. That's the circle. It goes around and around. And we're always kind of figuring out what it is that we want. But, you know, we're not redefining the fact that we want to retire at some point or slow down like that, you know, at age 25 or 30 or 35 or 40, whatever, that, that's always out there as a goal. You don't have to rethink that every day or even every year or even every five years. It's, it's out there. But then there's the hard part. In some ways, what we've been talking about so far is the easy part, which is just sort of think through some stuff, figure out what it is that you really want to afford. And I don't mean a, I don't mean a, a new car or jewelry, I mean affording connection to others. I mean having autonomy over your life. I mean having um, the ability to pursue a fabulous career and so forth, which, you know, it's sort of strange to, a talk, to talk about affording those things, but they cost something and we need to be able to spend that capital to do it. But beyond that, um, it's just not about purpose. It's also about plan. And the thing about plans is that they point us in the right direction, but they're inevitably going to be wrong because we simply can't predict what the future will hold. But it's really good to have sort of a, a roadmap. And this is really two thirds of the book. It's 
you know, having a sense of what your priorities are, having a sense of your net worth, getting into the weeds a little bit on having a balance sheet, not only assets, but liabilities. And I'm not a financial advisor. I I don't have a a vested interest in, in saying this. But what's true is that those who work with financial advisors tend to have better financial outcomes than those who don't. And the reason uh, is not because the financial advisor knows more about the stock market or the economy, can make better stock picks or build better portfolios. That, that, that's actually not true. There's not a lot of evidence to support that. Where the evidence does come in is to show that you know when you work with a planner or an advisor of some kind, somebody that kind of fits your personality and your culture, this is somebody who can help you get and stay organized, which is really hard to do. And on top of that, they can be a behavioral coach because we're wired in the way that I mentioned before to buy high and sell low, to not invest for the long run, and so on and so forth. We tend not to make a lot of little bad decisions every day that over time add up to a a terrible situation. It's quite the opposite. We periodically, and hard to predict, but every now and then we make a terrible decision, which sets us back sometimes irrevocably, where the real value of the advisor comes in in terms of uh, executing and maintaining a plan is to make sure that you don't make those catastrophic mistakes. And it's almost like an insurance policy on making bad decisions. So setting purpose is one thing, but establishing priorities and and coming up with a plan, it's the other half to the puzzle that if you don't address it, uh, this isn't really going to work. Does working with a professional financial advisor help take some of my emotion out of my investing? Yeah, it does. And I think it's important to note that people who work with financial advisors tend to have better financial outcomes than those who don't. And it's not because the advisor is an expert uh, in the stock market or an economist and uh, has some special insight into investments that are better than others. It's not that, uh, even though that's what many people believe. What, What it really is, is that the advisor can get you organized and keep you that way, which is really hard in today's world of having a a million different digital accounts and assets all over the place. But more importantly, more deeply, the advisor can serve as a behavioral coach and can keep you basically from being the worst version of yourself at the worst possible time. (laughs) We don't make make lots of little, tiny, bad decisions uh, every day that add up to a really bad scenario. What we do periodically is make just a catastrophic mistake. Uh, and that sets us back for years and, and sometimes forever. You can think about people who uh, sold uh, in the throes of the 2008 crisis mm-hmm. and to this day have not gotten back into the market. The really good advisors who have their clients on a plan that's appropriate for their goals and needs would be able to say during those very scary times, and we were all scared, it was, it was very difficult, but they can say, this too shall pass. And lo and behold, the market is up many fold since that time. A lot of people, the average mutual fund investor didn't get back into the market until 2013. They, they missed the, the bulk of the, the post-crisis gain because they wanted to wait to see that things got better again before they got, got in. It, it raises what I think is an important observation for the everyday investor, which is that if this is fun or feels easy, then you're doing it wrong and it's probably not going to work out. If you're just chronically uncomfortable and nervous, it means that you're probably making some good decisions. That's what it means to buy low and sell high. That's a fancy way of saying be uncomfortable a lot of the time. You talk about winning by not losing. That's avoiding the big mistake, right? 
Absolutely. Absolutely. It's about prioritizing risk in its many forms in your thought process. Uh, it's just too easy. And, and all of us are susceptible to this. The, the sugar rush of seeing you know, company stocks go up you know, many times over. Winning by not losing is just a really important mindset to have. And it's not one that comes naturally to almost any of us because we see the big gains. We see IPOs uh, of big tech companies and people getting rich overnight. And that's always you know, something that's going to appeal to us. The best investors, and, and I have a long career in investment due diligence. I've had a chance to interview and work with you know, some of the top money managers in the world over the last 20 years. The ones who are actually the very best, the ones who have the best long-term returns are not the ones who stand at the plate and point at the fence and say, hey, I'm going to hit a home run. What they are are the, are the ones who think first and foremost about the risks that they're taking the mistakes that they might make and prioritizing that mindset over the notion that you're going to kind of take a big swing and, and, and hit a home run. And that gut check goes against some of our human instincts to chase the big prey or to want to be the hero by picking the right stock early. I've certainly seen it myself with some with some angel investing. And I've had to say, why did I do that? Why? I mean, what was my motivation to get in there? And it's painful. It is, but we are status-seeking creatures. We not only want more for the sake of more, but we want others to know that we've made more. It just makes us feel better. It makes us feel more important. I mean, it just everything comes back to the fact that this is such a human experience. It's such a, a behavioral experience that, you know, sitting, you know, getting a, an MA or a PhD in, in finance, uh, it is not the key to success. It's really just coming to terms with who you are and, and who, who you want to be. What version of you do you want to be in the future? And going through some of the work, and it is work, not easy, of thinking, okay, what really underlies that vision for who I want to be, what I want my family to be in the years and the generations to come? And thinking about, well, what do I need to put in place to increase the odds of doing that? Well, another thing is we don't think probabilistically. We just think in terms of, okay, if I do X, then Y will happen. Well, mm -hmm. it's a lot harder, but it's more important to say, well, if X happens, well, there's a, probably an X percent chance that Y could happen. It reminds us that you know, a lot of this is guesswork, that we want to play the odds, uh, but that's really the way to do it. This is really a different investment <clears throat> book. You start with sort of a philosophical outlook on what people want from life. And you said you've been thinking about this since you were very young. When did you start thinking about the role of money and happiness? I mean, at some non-professional, non-technical level, I think all of us, you, me, all of your listeners, you know, you go to school and you get a job and you want to make money and, and you have many implicit and some explicit thoughts about how career success, which is usually, for better or for worse, managed in terms of money and your bank account, how that relates to being successful, how that relates to being happy, how that relates to you know how you're seen and evaluated by others. So you know on that level, I'm just a regular guy think, thinking about these things. You know from a, a little bit more in-depth and, and professional point of view, you know I really think it's been over the last probably eight, ten years that I've taken this quite seriously. I, I wrote the first book on behavioral finance wasn't technical. It was also a little bit philosophical and conceptual, but it, it was a, a more narrowly defined book. Uh, it's called The Investor's Paradox. 
about how we can you know, make good or, or better investment decisions. And then that book came out. I think it was well-received. It, it led to some great things. In the meanwhile, on the personal side, got three kids, wife, live here in the city of Chicago. Kids are getting older, begin to think about, okay, well, you know, what are they going to do, you know, in terms of college and what are their lives going to be like? And, you know, just much more of a personal exploration than a, than a professional one. I began to think, okay, well, w- would I give them the investor's paradox as a book to read on like how to be successful or how to lead a happy life? And the answer was absolutely not. I'm proud of the book. I, I think it's good at certain things, but I wanted to write something that had a much broader kind of step back philosophical quality that asked these harder and more amorphous questions. And, you know, this is, this is what I came up with. Did you discover anything about yourself, the way you relate to money through the process of writing this book? Did you have any aha moments while, while doing your research? <laughs> All right. Now we're getting on the couch. This is, uh, this is good. What did I, what, what did I learn about myself? I guess I'll, I'll say that um, I forced myself to reckon a lot with the career that I've built over the last uh, 25 plus years and what has made me, at least in retrospect, truly happy versus uh, times when I I wasn't so, even though there was probably from the outside looking in uh, this sort of, um, you know, vision of, you know, success and making some decent money. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I definitely came to terms with some of that. The other way I'd put it, maybe a bigger picture, perspective is that, you know, this four C's that I, that I mentioned, like these deeper uh, sources of meaning, uh, connection, control, context, and competence, just writing that down and using that as a, a filter to kind of think back through my life, it has definitely led to some, some revelations. It's led to good conversations between my wife and me in terms of the things that we value priorities, and, and those aren't identical. I, I think that's the nature of any marriage. Um, You're kidding. You don't agree with 100% of things with your wife? I, I do. Yeah. I, how about that? We don't agree on everything. It's been very helpful. And in fact, I've gotten some wonderful feedback from both friends as well as strangers who are now friends who have read the book. And they say, you know, they actually used the geometry of wealth, purpose, priorities, decisions, that framework as mm-hmm. husband and wife to kind of sit down with a piece of paper or a whiteboard and say, you know, are we actually underwriting a meaningful life? Are we spending our money in the right way? And I've gotten some, it's really heartwarming. I've gotten some great feedback from people I I didn't know before who said, you know what, this actually led our family to a really good conversation about money because like we said earlier, it's a really difficult topic to talk about. Part of what you do now full time is helping to spread the word about financial literacy and making better decisions. The Geometry of Wealth is a great thought-provoking book. I think fund and contentment is an outstanding concept for what it means to, to be truly wealthy. But how do you get this, how do you get everyday people to start to think about this? Very few people on a relative basis are going to take the time and effort to, to seek out a book like yours. Yeah. And I think about how do I evangelize this a little bit? And so uh, you know, I am working at an investment firm called Magnetar Capital, and we're heavily involved. We run a lot of investment strategies for investors of different types all over the world. But one of the main initiatives here is to not just promote, but to underwrite financial literacy in 
communities of all, of all kinds all, all over the country. We actually have a partnership with a group of professional educators at the University of Chicago. They've put together uh, just a crackerjack curriculum, uh, professionally designed based on the most modern learning science, both analog and digital, uh, both textbook and apps. And it actually, I mean, it's, it's a happy accident that wasn't planned this way. But as I got into the curriculum with these professional educators, uh, PhDs in pedagogy and so forth, it ends up that a lot of them have a mathematics background. They got into this a number of years ago thinking, oh, well, you know, financial literacy and navigating the world of money is, it's a problem of numeracy, which we know Americans are not very good at math. You know, very few people are, are great at math. Uh, but what they realized in short order is that this was only partly, and a minority of it, an intellectual problem of numeracy. And it was a broader behavioral problem about decision-making and habit formation. Mm-hmm. And so the curriculum that we've developed, the curriculum that we provide to school districts all over the country, and the program is called FinEdge. The URL is finedge.uchicago.edu. It's, it's actually really cool. It starts off with, number one, an evaluation of your own values. Mm-hmm. And number two, a, a real focus on decision-making generally. not buying stocks or finding the best savings account or finding the lowest APR credit card. That stuff's actually really important in a, in a tactical, everyday uh, money management vein, but it, it doesn't start there. Where it starts with is who are you and how do you make decisions and how do you evaluate those decisions over time? And so it does walk through saving, spending, insuring, earning. There's a special module on paying for college because the way this course is designed is that it's for um, seniors and uh, juniors or seniors in, in high school. And so it, it goes into all the topics that we would recognize. But the thing is, the Pinterest or the Wikipedia or the even IKEA version of financial literacy, that's quite prominent, meaning like you go pick what you want. And in some cases, you have to assemble it yourself. And it doesn't work. There's just a ton of scholarship to show that it doesn't work very well. We've gone a very different direction and spent a lot of time and a lot of resources putting together a professional curriculum. It's a course that should be taught as a course focused on values and decision-making, which then lead to better money decisions, not just in high school, obviously, but to create habits and decision-making vocabularies for years to come. It's doable. It's harder work than people realize. I never have to convince anyone that financial literacy is an important thing. Mm -hmm. I have to convince people every single day that it's doable. Right. Um, it's, it's an interesting bifurcation. The URL is finedge.uchicago.edu, and we'll put the link to that in the show notes. I'm looking at it while you're talking, and it's very cool and seems very, very worthwhile. Brian, before we finish up, is there anything that you wanted to cover that I didn't ask you about or that you think would be interesting for the listener? Now, this is actually a really fun conversation. We've covered the waterfront for the most part. We talked about the circle. We talked about the triangle. We didn't really talk about the square, but that's okay. I actually write in the book that you can skip the square. That's the investing <laughs> piece. Despite the fact that I've been in the investment world for 20 years and managed portfolios and work at a big investment firm now, I, I, I will say loudly and proudly that investing is the least important piece to a successful money life. It's more about earning, saving, spending, and developing good habits. But, you know, to the extent that you and and your listeners have an angle on markets, I think the square section of the geometry of wealth does a pretty decent job of talking in quite simple terms 
uh, boiling down complex investment concepts to very simple terms mm-hmm. so that people can um, make better decisions. Know what you want and keep it simple. Yeah. Do you talk about the concept of enough with your kids? Yeah, we do. I, I'd say we probably talk about need versus want more. Right. The part of the book that I might be happiest with is the very last chapter where I do a pretty deep dive on the, the distinction between more and enough. In fact, my third book might take that one issue of more versus enough and like right. just go gangbusters on it because I think it's from, from a biological, neuroscience, sociological, even political point of view, like that mental model of the tension, and I would argue irresolvable tension between more and enough, is what each of us is grappling with on an everyday basis. I want my kids to understand that that's a rhythm that they're going to have to manage for their entire lives. Yeah, it never stops. I mean, it never stops. I don't want it to stop. I love it. This issue of control is really important. My little rant on busy versus priorities. That's important. It's like make decisions that you're using your best judgment and your moral compass and go for it and expect that a lot of the time it's going to be wrong and it's not going to work out. Uh, But that's okay. Guess what? You get to pivot. You get to change. Uh, You're not a victim. You have agency. It's just to say that I haven't at length uh, studied and written about structural Marxism, which has its virtues. So it's not like agency is an unfettered thing. But like in the moment, day by day, we can make decisions. And it's important for people to recognize that they can go left instead of right, up instead of down, if they want to. And being aware of what they're trying to do is a pretty good first step in figuring out where to go next. I mean, you brought it up and it was, you know, we, we could spend so much more time on it. Why do most people invest? What, what are they trying to achieve? The answer is more. Well, what the fuck is that? More what? I mean, <laughs> I, uh, I just, okay. Not only more, but I want to be right. I like being right a lot. That's yeah. probably the best motivation to, to, to plan my retirement on them. You want to cross through lots of gates along the way where you've been validated. Sometimes it's validation relative to your own aspirations, but a lot of times, obviously, it's validation by outside forces, people recognizing that you're successful or liking a tweet or whatever the hell it is. This is why economics and finance is mostly just a huge load of bullshit. Like, what is it all about? It, well, the basic utility function, it doesn't matter how fancy the math gets, the basic utility function in economics is that more is better than less. Right. Okay. Well, there's a massive, in my first book on Investor's Paradox, stole the the name from a book by Barry Schwartz called The Paradox of Choice. And Mm -hmm. there's lots of psychological evidence to show that more is, more is not more, more, more is less. Like the more you get, the more miserable you become, the more choice, the more information, the more options. And the world is just absolutely like their backs are breaking under the amount of stuff that we have. You know, why the shapes? Because I can give an hour-long presentation with one PowerPoint slide, and it's just the three shapes. And people can listen to me, and they're going to walk away, and they're going to say, huh, purpose, priorities, decisions, circle, triangle, square. I get it. Right. And if I did a 30-page version of it, which I can and have, they're writing shit down. They're taking pictures of slides. They're what? It's like, no. Priorities, decisions. That's it. That's great. Well, I really enjoyed reading your book. I was refreshing to see money and wealth approach from a kind of a philosophical and self-aware 
point of view. And so, so I thank you for your work. The name of the book is The Geometry of Wealth, How to Shape a Life of Money and Meaning. Our guest today has been Brian Portnoy. Brian, where can people find you if they want to find out more about your work? The best way to keep on top of what I'm writing and, and thinking is on, through Twitter. So at Brian Portnoy, and there's a very active and constructive and not political uh, everyday dialogue about markets and portfolios and risk and clients and behavior and, and things like that. So at Brian Portnoy is the best bet. Our uh, company website is magnetar.com. So you can learn more about who we are as a firm. And then you mentioned finedge.chicago.edu as the way to learn more about what I'm really focused on right now. Brian, thank you very much for your time today. We really appreciate you joining us. Absolutely. My pleasure. That was Brian Portnoy. Who's Brian Portnoy? The guy who talked with you. That's right. That was Brian Portnoy from Magnetar and from The Geometry of Wealth and The Investor's Paradox. We'll put links to both of those books in the show notes. Hope you can check them out. Folks, if you enjoy what we're doing here at Crazy Money, I sure would appreciate it if you'd go to iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Last.fm, Overcast, whatever app on which you are listening to this, rate us a whole bunch of stars, leave us a review, and share it with a friend. Thanks for stopping by. We will be back next week with another episode of, what's the name of it? Crazy Money. Yay!